0: Okay, I got your Bible. Looking at the first half of Philippians chapter 1. God speaks it to us. We want to understand Him. We want to see Him shape our lives, so let's ask Him to help us. Father, we ask you to open our minds, give us attention, uh, help us to hear and understand what you say. Please do tune our heads and hearts uh, to your truth. Please do work in us, reform us, and remake us. In Jesus, Amen. The tagline on our logo is a reminder of grace. Come as you are. Uh, It's a reminder for us and for others that God doesn't say, come when you're perfect. He doesn't even say, come when you're better. We don't need to be better to be loved and accepted by God. We don't need to be better to be loved and accepted by sojourners. Just to be clear, though, God doesn't love you just the way you are. He loves you in spite of the way you are. That's grace. That's God generously and kindly loving us, they don't deserve it. It's so helpful uh, to realize that when we see our sin, when we know that we do not deserve to be accepted, to know that God loves us in spite of who we are. He forgives all who come to him in Christ. And if you're curious but not yet committed, I hope you're saying this, that God loves you in spite of the way you are, and will gladly accept you and forgive you if you come to him in Christ. We really can come as we are. But God our Father loves his forgiven people too much to leave us as we are. He shows us a better way, and he intends to change us. I'm guessing most of us know that we're not what we should be we still have to come as we are. We need the reassurance that God loves us in spite of what we are because we know that the perfect and holy God could not love us the way we are for what we are. Will God ever love us the way we are? Will he ever look at everything we do? Will he, ever, will he ever look at everything you do? Will he ever look at ever, hear everything you say? Will he ever know all your thoughts and your desires and your longings and smile? Will he ever be pleased by all of who you are? Will he ever love you the way you are? Getting in Philippians. That's a letter from Paul who writes, he's one of Christ's apostles, but he introduces himself as a servant slave. He's an apostle. He's someone who Jesus gave responsibility and ability to teach with Jesus' authority. Everything he says in this letter assumes he has that authority. That we should believe what he teaches, uh, trust God to do what he says God will do, obey God uh, by doing what Paul says God will, commands us to do but his first sentence is to introduce himself as a servant slave a servant slave of the one he'll talk about as the one who took on the form of a servant slave saying he owes christ jesus complete obedience and perfect submission he belongs to his master jesus christ he must obey and serve Jesus in everything. He reminds his hearers of who he is, and he calls them saints in verse 1. say the Bible, the word saint is mostly used to say someone is super spiritual, or at least to say that they're really, really good. But that's not how the Bible uses it. When Paul wrote to the rabbi church in Corinth, he had a long list of things they were thinking badly, and maybe a longer list of things they were doing badly. But he still called them saints. He wasn't saying anything about what they're like. He's talking about whose they are. It's the same here. A saint is someone who is holy. The words are related. And holy means that they are owned by God, picked out by God, dedicated to God. My toothbrush is holy to me. It's not that it's a particularly flash toothbrush. But it's owned by me, it's picked out by me, It started its life in a multipack, pack but now it is mine, holy to me, dedicated to me. And Paul calls these men, women, and children in Philippi, saints. He isn't saying they're special, or they've achieved something, or that they've got it together. He isn't saying anything about what they're like, he's saying whose they are. They're God's people. They're God's people in Christ Jesus. And if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, you are one of God's people. Owned by him, picked out by him. His person is who you are. It's who you're for. Just like a servant slave must obey their master, a saint must live to honor God. We'll see that as we read on. Uh, Paul mentions briefly uh, those with leadership responsibilities among Christ's people. I think he mentioned it so that to remind them to lead by prayerfully preaching and, and teaching and to remind the church to listen to them. Uh, he speaks in verse 2 his desire for for them all to know and experience and be convinced of the blessings of grace and peace uh, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To know God's grace, his gener- generosity, his kindness, his forgiveness. To know they're at peace with God now, one aspect of that, one aspect of the blessings of grace and peace, is seeing God as he who began a good work in you and will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Verse 6. Paul's thanks and prayer, right from verse 3 to verse 11, rely on him thinking about God as he who began a good work and will bring it to completion. He looks back and he looks forward in the lives of the men, women and children of the church in Philippi and he sees God has worked and he is sure that God will work. Where he sees God has worked, he is confident that God will work. A lot of planning has gone into Brisbane's bid to host the Olympics. Uh, over the next few years, um, I'm pretty sure we're going to say, see some very ambitious building projects. And when we see the Olympics logo on the, uh, on the hoarding uh, around the building, we'll know when it's due for completion. It's got to be done uh, sometime in 2032. There might be a few projects which miss the completion date, uh, but we'll expect that all the projects the builders... Uh, we'll, have the, we'll be putting the time and the energy and the effort, and they'll have the financial resources to run hard towards getting finished for Ceremony Day. God is working towards the opening ceremony of the new heavens and the new earth. The day of Christ Jesus. All his building projects will be finished on schedule all his building projects will be finished on time. Now, I'm not talking about houses for his people to live in. I'm talking about the people who live with him. His saints. The people he has set apart as his. A more literal translation of the second half of verse 6 is something like, he will be completing until the day of Christ Jesus. When Jesus returns... To bring us to eternal, our eternal home, God will have completed what he's begun. Meanwhile, he is completing it. He is continuing his good work towards completion. The opening day of the completed you is the day of Christ Jesus, the day Jesus brings us home. Verse 6 gets us thinking about God as the one who does that. Verse 6 gets us thinking about God as he, uh, God as the one who began a good work in you, who will continue his good work until you are complete on the day Jesus brings you home. Why Why does Paul talk about God like that? Well, because it explains his thanks and it motivates his prayers. First, because it explains why he is so thankful for what God has done in the Philippians. See, that's what he's doing verse 3 to 8. He's thanking God. He's thanking God for what the Philippians have done because what they have done is the result of God's good work begun in them. Verse 3, he's thanking God. He's praying with joy in his heart because he sees what God has done so far. Verse 5, because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. They've been actively partnering with him. uh, They've been actively partnering with him uh, when there have been opportunities, right in that 10 years since uh, they heard and believed the gospel up until now. They obviously know the sort of things that uh, Paul is thinking about. They're the ones I've been partnering. Uh, We see them as we read Acts. We see them as we read the letter. In the earliest days, they sent help for him uh, when it was a week walking to go west uh, to Thessalonica. Uh, Most recently, they've sent Epaphroditus to help him in prison in Rome, financially, prayerfully, proclaiming the same gospel, suffering the same consequences. They have been active gospel partners with Paul. Verse 7, he describes them as partakers with him, fellow partners with him of grace, both in his imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He and they have together participated in God's generous grace. God's generous gift to them has included them identifying with Paul in praying and sympathizing with him, in sending him financial help and other help while he's imprisoned, and also in that they too have defended and confirmed the same gospel. They've stood firm. They've been striving side by side for the faith with each other. They haven't been frightened off by their opponents. God has generously worked in them in the same way he has worked in Paul, their fellow partners it gives Paul so much joy to know God has been working it in them. Start of verse 7, he says he thinks and feels with such thankfulness and joy of what God has been doing in them. The best way to describe it is that they are in his heart. In the modern West, the heart is pure emotion. But for the ancients, the heart was the sort of center of the inner life. The center of thinking and feeling and deciding. So it's, it is, it's probably best, and it's why I use it around the place. Um, it's probably best to think of him saying they're in his head and heart. The way he thinks, the way he feels is all captured. His thought out, his deeply felt desire is for the same things Christ longs for his people. They're in his hearts. Verse 8, he yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. He longs to be with them. In chapter 1, verse 25, he'll say why. For their progress and joy in the faith. He wants for them what Christ Jesus wants for them. That's how they're in his heart. That's what in longing for them with Christ's affections means. His thought out, his heartfelt desire for them is their salvation. It's love that thinks and fails. So it's his joy, his delight to reflect on how the Philippians have begun and continued. That joy and delight makes him speak his thanks to God who has been and who still is and who will be at work to save them. It's so helpful, isn't it? To recognize, to just see how he's processing, how he's thinking about the stories he hears about them. When he thinks back to what they've done, he sees God doing it. He sees God's work in their active partnership with them. He sees God's work in their partnering with him in the shame of his arrest and trial. He sees God's work in them speaking the same gospel he spoke even when it means they suffer as he suffered. He's glad. He's glad to see it. It gives him joy because it reassures him that they are genuinely God's people, that they really are saints. And because he knows that God completes what he started, it means he looks ahead and he knows what will come for them. So he tells them how full of joy he has been as he thinks of them, remembering him, partnering with him, proclaiming the same gospel in spite of opposition. He has been full of joy at the thought of it and full of thanks to God who has been doing it. Both the Philippians and God were involved in what they did. They thought, they decided, they acted, but beneath their thoughts, their decisions, their actions was God working. So Paul thanks God, he thanks God because he has done this good work in them by his spirit as they've heard the gospel. And he thanks God with joy because his heart's desire is that they stand firm to the end. And because God begins and continues and will complete, he's confident that they will. He you know how strong he is about God working? Lots of people look on at Christianity uh, from the outside and think it's just another religion. Think it's a, just another thing to do to make God happy with you. Uh, but that is what religions tend to promote. They promote gods who feed on human devotion, gods who need what human worshippers bring, But Christianity isn't one of those. It's not what we can do for God, but what God has done for us. What God is doing for us and what he will do for us. He really is at work in us who believe. He saves completely. He deserves our thanks and praise. Imagine being one of the Philippians that uh, Paul wrote this to. Imagine how encouraging and sustaining it would be to hear him affirm and confirm your faith. Imagine how much help it would be when you're tempted to distance yourself from him or or to pull back from being clear about God's gospel when it was bringing suffering. Imagine how helpful it would be to recognize that when you've stood with him, When you proclaimed the gospel, when you've kept going even though it meant opposition, it's because God was working in you. Imagine what Paul would write to you and us. If he wrote his joyful thanks to God for what he has done so far in us sojourners, what would he write? What ways God has been at work in us would he hint at? What active partnership with brothers and sisters in sojourn, uh, around Brisbane, around Australia, uh, in Japan and Eurasia and elsewhere? Giving, prayer, solidarity, suffering. What fellow partnership in speaking the gospel even though it has brought opposition? Imagine what Paul would write to you and us. And thank God for what he has done. Thank God with, with the joyful expectation that the one who has been working will carry on his work to, the, to its completion in the day of Christ Jesus. We can't have that confident, confidence looking to the future. Now, God does warn us elsewhere about the danger of drifting. Uh, bits of Hebrews, Galatians, the parable of the sower... Those warnings are real and we must give them their weight. The warnings are necessary when life now has no evidence of God's work. When all the stories of trust and confidence are growing old and there are no new ones. The warnings are designed to unsettle us to send us back to God for mercy. They're designed to get us speaking to one another, saying, go back, trust him. There are warnings in Scripture, but there's also this assurance. There's assurance for ourselves and joyful confidence uh, when we see that God is still shaping the lives of men, women, and children. The best evidence of past conversion is present convertedness. Where we see God has begun and continued his work to this day, we can confidently expect that he will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. We see God is doing that in ourselves and other sojourners and the mission partners and the people they work among. We see what God has done so far and is still doing. We have every reason, not only to thank him for what he's done, but to joyfully thank him because we see where it's all going. We see what he will do. When he brings us home, we will not only be completely forgiven our sin, we will be completely sinless. Not only completely sinless, but completely righteous. Pure hearts, clean thoughts, perfect desires. Seeing God as he who has begun a good work and will continue his good work in his people until the day of Christ Jesus when he completes it adds deep joy to Paul's thanks. He thanks God for what he's done so far and he thanks God for what he's done so far in the framework and the context and the expectation that God will carry it on to completion But notice his confident expectation doesn't bring complacency. Verse 8, he yearns with Christ's affection for them. He wants to get to be with them for their progress and joy in the faith. It drives what he does. But more fund- fundamentally, it drives what he prays. And that's what verses 9 to 11 are about. They're Paul asking God to keep completing what he's begun. He asked God to finish what he started. Verse 6 and verse 10, they're both looking to the day of Christ. Now, Paul only knows what God's going to do because God has told him. God doesn't need chips from Paul about what to do next or what to aim for. But Paul has been praying. He's been calling on God to grow their love so that, they're com- so that they'll be complete on the day of Christ. It's a pattern in the Bible. So many prayers in the Bible are simply calling on God to do what God has already said he will do. And we actually get to be part of him doing it, part of him achieving his purposes through our prayers. So let's look at what Paul prays, verse 9. He prays God will work love, love which abounds more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Love which is full and overflowing like a glass under a tap, turned on full bore, overflowing. He wants that a love like that, characterized by spirit-formed love for God, our Father, for Christ, our Savior, love for believers, love for the lost. Love that feels and love that thinks. Filled and overflowing with knowledge of how things really are. Filled and overflowing with the ability to recognize and choose what's good and best. Paul's praying for people like us. People whose thoughts and desires and decisions have been impure. People who could be blamed. People who have not lived rightly. People who have found forgiveness in Jesus Christ who bore our guilt and took our shame. And he's asking God to work more in them. He's already worked more. <laughs> He's asking God to work more in them, not just forgiveness. Transformation. Radical, complete, deep, overflowing transformation. Head and heart tuned so that their their love for God and his son for believers and the lost knows exactly what's true and exactly what to do. When God has worked that, they'll not only be forgiven and considered righteous, they'll be, verse 10. They'll be able to recognize and choose what is excellent. They'll be actually pure and blameless, deep down with nothing to cause offense to God. And not just clean, blank, nothing, but filled with the fruit of righteousness which the Spirit works In Christ Jesus rescued people. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul sees what they'll be when they're complete. He sees what they'll be on the day of Christ Jesus perfected. God's work complete, All the God's great glory and praise as the one who did it. And he asks God to work it. If you're not sure what to pray, this is a great go-to prayer. It's exactly what we can and should be praying for ourselves and for one another, uh, for our Christian friends, for mission partners, uh, for brothers and sisters they serve with. It's a great thing to be praying. That God would complete the work that he has begun. By the way, I think... I think coming out of seeing God as the one who begins and continues and completes also gives us confidence to ask him to begin. He is able to start this work in the most determined of rebellious hearts. Paul who wrote Philippians, he would have said his heart was one of those. When we ask God to begin this work, when we ask God to save our non-Christian friends, we're asking the one who is able to do it. But The focus on these verses is on seeing God as the one who begins and continues and completes. So that when we look around, when we see his work, we joyfully give thanks for what he has already done, what he has done so far and we ask him to keep completing what he has begun. Seeing God as the one who begins and continues and completes feeds our confidence and assurance. It expands our joy at seeing what he has done because it connects it to what he will do. Seeing God as the one who begins and continues and completes sets us up to thank the one who is ultimately responsible for our progress towards maturity. It shifts our thoughts even from thinking that we pursue it, we pursue godliness and holiness and maturity as something we do to recognizing it as something God does in us. We're not passive. He does it through our prayers. He does it through our work in speaking the gospel to one another. He works it by his spirit as we deliberately hear his word. He tunes our heads and hearts to overflow more and more with love, which knows and decides and does what is best. But he does it. He works it, and our Heavenly Father is pleased by and enjoys the overflow of his work. While we wait, we're incomplete we still sin. We don't need to look back very far to see that we need forgiveness. Praise God that He loves us in spite of what we've done. Praise God that He will do away with everything in our heads and hearts that overflows in disobedience and distrust. Praise God that when he brings us safely home, he will love us the way we are, pure, blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we do indeed give you joyful thanks uh, for the work you have done in those who believe. Father, we thank you for our partnership in the gospel, uh, for the ways we've got to partner with each other and with those further ahead further uh, away. Father, we thank you that you convince and persuade us by your Spirit in the area of partnership, in the area of godliness and holiness, in our lives on mission, in our lives loving and serving one another for one another's perseverance. We thank you for your work so far. We thank you that we know you and meet you as the God who begins and continues and will continue until you you complete your good work of saving. So, Father, we do give you thanks for what you have done, and, Father, we call upon you to continue that good work. Please do cause us to overflow with love for you, for your son, for one another, for the lost. Love which sees what's true, love which knows what to do, so that more and more our lives are pleasing and honoring to you. Father, please strengthen us to keep in step with your spirit as he works in us as we hear your word. As in the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen.